0: I don't have to tell you that, but I do want to talk about it for a minute. Uh, we are a conflicted society. You can see it certainly with the last election and the close margin of victory and or defeat, depending on how you look at it, uh, all, all across our land at so many different levels. Uh, so you can see it in the election returns and then, of course, in how those returns have been discussed in the weeks since. Uh, we are a conflicted society. You can see it in our social media posts. And the derisive language, the inflammatory speech that is oftentimes just spewed out there for the whole world to watch and read and to absorb. We are a conflicted society. You can. We've witnessed it. We've witnessed it in the terrible video footage there from January the sixth and the storming of the U.S. Capitol. We're a conflicted society. Our uh, our president in his inaugural address, urged our nation towards unity. And many people, even as he was saying that, many people responded by saying, with, with, with a, a cynical um, response, yeah, but what do you mean by that? When you, when you say unity, what do you mean by that? And, and actually, that, that's a warranted question. There, there, there's some warrant to asking that question, what do you mean when you call for unity, what exactly do you mean? At the same time, even with all that cynicism, and when, even with all of that skepticism, when you consider the deep nerve that that call had, and, and, and the deep response that was true across the board, a call to unity, you have to ask yourself some questions, what is it about that? That seems to land so viscerally, so deeply in the human heart. It's almost as though, it's almost as though, in calling for it and talking about it and just putting it out there, maybe there's this deep memory that has been stirred, some ancient longing that has been uncovered. Which then begs this question, is it possible? Is community, true unity, possible? And if so, how? If you've got a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Psalm 133. We're pressing on in this uh, series in the Songs of Ascent's. Uh, That's Psalms 120 to 134. So you can see, if we're at 133, we're nearly completed. Uh, We've nearly completed that series. So we're in Psalm 133. This is short, but it is quite powerful. These words, just these three verses. Hear now God's word Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Let's pray for a moment. Lord Jesus, thank You for these words. Thank You for giving us the opportunity to listen in to listen in to these songs as they were sung so many years ago, and then to be brought in, not just to listen in, but to be brought into the singing of these songs ourselves. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for these pilgrim songs, um, these songs of ascent that in so many ways point us towards what it is to live the life of discipleship, to follow after you, and to do so not just individually but corporately together. Uh, And we see that so clearly here in this psalm. We ask that you would please capture something of our imaginations with the the imagery used here, Uh, that you would stir something down deep in us, a longing, a hunger, a thirst, a vision. But even more than that, coming right on the heels of that, would you also instill in us a commitment to pursue that vision? We pray in your name. Amen. We don't know exactly the the context in which David wrote these words. We really don't know. Um, It's possible, possible, that this comes uh, after the point where he has uh, established His capital there in Jerusalem. The, the nation has, has been united, if you will, behind Him. It, it's, it's possible that it's at this point uh, that He is, has penned these words. We, we, we don't know, so again, we don't know exactly when the context in which we these, this was originally written. We, we do know, certainly, that it's part of the Songs of Ascent. Uh, We do know that it's part of this collection of psalms that was put together at some point for the pilgrims to sing as they were making their way north, south, east, west, from different parts of Israel, going up to temple, ascending, the songs, the songs of ascent, up to temple, up to Jerusalem for the annual feast. And think about it also, as these people were coming, they were coming from the 12 different tribes each one with its own culture each one from a different place on the map from different towns from different villages different families all of them coming coming slowly but surely you know dispersed but as they get closer they're coming together as one and there's among the songs they're singing is this one psalm 133 Verse 1, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's, it's, the images here are so striking. A, a significant key, an interpretive key, if you will, to the lock of understanding what's going on here is to recognize that you see the same verbiage, at least in the Hebrew, three times in this 3 verse psalm. And it's the, the language of running down. You see it twice in in verse 2 and then once in verse 3 where it refers to the dew falling on the mountains of Zion. Well, actually in the Hebrew, it's the exact same thing that you see in verse 2. Again, that reference to this running down. The idea is that there's there's movement. There's there's effect. There's, There's something happening here. It's not stagnant. It's, it's something moving. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Unity, community, is, is a gift of God. It's a gift of God to the people of God for a hurting world. Now, think about that. That's really what the psalm is telling us. It's a gift of God to the people of God for a hurting world. It is good. The exact same word. That's used in Genesis 1 again and again and again, assessing the pre-fall creation. It's good, it's pleasant, meaning it's it's lovely in its appearance and inviting, um, enticing in its appeal, and fruitful in its effect. It is good and it is pleasant, and no wonder the first word is behold. Behold, see, observe, take in, appreciate, wonder at what it could be, what it is for relationships to be unfolding and lived out and embraced in a way that they're supposed to be. Behold how good and pleasant it is. When this happens, and and this is something, by the way, again, it's a gift. It has to descend. It has to come down. Remember I said that three times? You see it here? We can't just work it up. We can't just gin it up. We can't just make it happen. It has to be given. It has to descend. It has to come down. It's a gift. This is a gift of God to the people of God to be shared with the world. Now, what would it look like to live that out? The Psalm tells us. It shows us. It shows us three things. So, if you got printed out your outline, you can see where I'm going with this. First is it it, it it stands out. There's something about there's something about this that that stands out in the world. There's also something about this that gives life in the world, but we also see something in here in terms of how it takes root. Okay, so. Stands out, gives life, takes root. First, community, as Psalm 133 describes it, stands out in the world. Again, verse 2, it is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. The imagery is, is quite striking here. Oil, all right? What, what, what on earth is this about? Likely it's, it's olive oil, likely uh, scented with some, some precious... Um, uh well, perfumes and such and 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 it's, it's, it was ordinary. It had ordinary daily, just normal everyday uses. Uh, you, you apply it to your skin, it leaves a, a glowing sheen. Uh, you put enough of it on it's going to have a fragrant smell. This is just ordinary everyday uses. you could understand how that would be applicable and and would find its use, but that's not probably how it's meant to be understood here, but for the oil also had special uses um, to consecrate, to set apart, to confer authority. We could, we, in our church language, we would say ordain. I mean, I mean, after all, who is this that the oil has been poured out upon but Aaron, the high priest. Uh, Aaron, whose role as any high priest was to play the role of, of the intercessor, the mediator between God and the people, the one who uh, once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, was to take the blood of the sacrifices behind the curtain, behind the holy place, into the holy of holies. Uh, That was his role. So, okay, so that's the imagery. You have this oil. It's been applied to Aaron. It's implying a consecration. It's implying something someone... A people, here's the significance, being set apart. The whole nation, what it's pointing towards is not just the priest being set apart for these purposes, special, distinct purposes in the world, but the whole of the nation. The whole of the nation has been set apart for God's purposes, a special calling in this world. As we live out God's commands, as we walk in His ways, oh, the number of times we see this in in the Scriptures we see that uh, there, there's a special significance to that, a special um, uniqueness to that in how we are set aside and different as a city on a hill, as salt and light using uh, language from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You see this in Deuteronomy 4, among other places. Just keep your thumb there in Psalm 133, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Moses uh, says this rather clearly, Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8, the ways in which as, the, as we, we as His people walk in His ways, we will stand out in this world. Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8, "'See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when?' they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I have set before you today? And again, there's so many other places in the Scriptures that that point to this very thing of, of the way that we have been set apart to live in a distinct way, to live and to love in a distinct way. Let me take you back to, it was the text that was read just a little while ago from John 13, Jesus' words there in the upper room to His disciples, this new commandment, new by the way, not in the sense of the words that had never been spoken before, but new in the sense that He is speaking them. And he's speaking of a model that they've never had before, and it's him. Uh, John 13, the verses, I'll just read a little bit of that section. John 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love. For one another, you, you see that as we walk in the Lord's ways, as we love, as we have been loved, we're going to stand out. It's going to draw attention, now not to ourselves, that would be completely to misconstrue the, the intended meaning here, but drawing attention to the Lord Himself, the One whose love is flowing in and through us to one another. This sort of community stands out and gets the world's attention, which means we need to be wary of imbibing, of inhaling too much of the world's messages, lest the world have nothing to see, Uh, lest the salt lose its saltiness. Uh, Think of how that could happen in in this context and and what could happen to compromise our, our ability to actually be a city on a hill, be salt and light, when it comes to doing relationships one with another, when it comes to community. What are some of the messages that we hear all the time? Stand up for your rights. Don't give up your rights. Don't surrender your rights. Be real, be true to who you are. And you hear the noxious me centeredness in all of that. It's all about self. And that is completely toxic, utterly poisonous. To our ability to do relationships in a way that we're called to do, in a way that is countercultural, in a way that is gospel driven, in a way that is shaped by the way we have been loved by Jesus. To what extent did Jesus hold to his rights? We read in Philippians 2 he gladly laid them down for our sake. And it's out of that, that, out of that model, out of that knowing how we have been loved, as in the fact that even Jesus speaks of here in John 13. Well, we are to be, again, salt and light, a city on a hill, living in, loving in a distinctive way. And as we do so, what we see here in the Psalms, in John, everywhere else in the Scripture, to the extent we do that, it will confirm the gospel that we profess. To the extent we do that, it will confirm the gospel we profess. Community is a gift of God to the people of God, and to the extent that we live in that out, it'll stand out. It'll stand out. Now, that's the first image, the oil and the priest. But there's another one. And uh, you see that in the beginning of verse 3, and it, it is equally striking. And here we see it's not so much something that stands out, but something that gives life. It gives life. Look with me at verse 3. It, and that's all referring back to, to verse 1, when brothers dwell in unity, this good and pleasant thing, it is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountain's of Zion. All right, the imagery. What are we looking at here? Hermon. You need to understand that Mount Hermon is the tallest mountain in that part of the world. It stands at roughly 9,200 feet above sea level on a clear day. You can see it from so many different parts of uh, mid and northern Israel. It's, and it was the northernest part of ancient Israel, and you can see the snow caps for much of the year. It was proverbial to speak of the dew of Hermon was to speak of uh, plentiful dew in the morning when you woke up and the ground is just soaked. That was was a proverbial statement at, at the time. The idea being that the snow melt... This is is the way this works um, in in that part of Israel. The snow melt, as as it gets warmer, works its way down to the channels and pores of the rocks, down, down, down into the springs at the foot of Mount Hermon, that then is released in different channels, different streams that coalesce into a place we call the River Jordan. That's where that river comes from. Of those springs and the waters coming through Mount Hermon. Well, the idea here of, of the image it's quite striking. The idea of, of the dew of Hermon somehow falling on Jerusalem, the, making its way. It's as though what David has in mind is this image. Now, it's obviously not literal, but this image of somehow the slopes of Mount Hermon way up in the north somehow being extended all the way down in the south to Jerusalem, at least in terms of its effect. Um, Now, why would that be worth having? Why would that be worth noting? Well, keep in mind the dry, arid, barren condition of so much of that land and how critical moisture was for farms and for livestock and so how absolutely precious this moisture would be and how truly, truly life-giving it would, in fact, be. The significance of all this, well, let's go the opposite way. Without it, what do you have? Nothing. Lifelessness, barrenness, hard, cracked earth, no growth, no life. That's what you have without it. It's an imagery of, of emptiness. Come Now moving over to the relational spheres. Without the dew of Hermon, without its life-giving properties, without this coming down, we have this emptiness, we have this barrenness, we have, think with me, isolation and estrangement is what's being described here. But on the other side, with it, we have this flourishing. And this is how it's supposed to be. This is how our lives are supposed to be. It's supposed to be a picture. This idea of the dew of Hermon falling on the mountains of Zion is supposed to be what our lives, individually and corporately, is supposed to be. It's what the image is pointing us towards. Life comes through community. Life is not just lived out in community. Life comes through community as life-giving properties. That's what the psalm is telling us. John Stott, the late uh, scholar, preacher, pastor, prolific author, put it this way. Unity is as fragrant as oil and is as refreshing as dew. As fragrant as oil, as refreshing as dew. He's absolutely right. Absolutely right. So what, Okay, so with that in mind, what, how then should we think of it? How then should we regard it? Should it not be prized? Should it not be prized? Should, we, should it not be pursued? Looking for, not waiting for, looking for, not being passive, being active. Looking for, pursuing, prizing and pursuing opportunities for community. Think in our own local context, community groups. prizing it, pursuing it, dare I say, protecting it, recognizing again it's a valuable, precious commodity. It's why the Scriptures again and again and again impel us in the direction of biblical conflict resolution, biblical peacemaking. It's why the need was urged upon us for repentance, and confession, and forgiveness. It's why we see this soaked through the Bible, why Jesus urges this upon us. why you see it again and again and again in Paul's letters. My people, my brothers, my sisters, love one another, bear with one another, be patient with one another. Can I just put it this way? It might mean if we are, in fact, to prize and pursue and protect this thing that is described by David as being so good and so pleasant that maybe, perhaps, we should take gossip and slander off of our list of acceptable sins. Whether that's face-to-face or on social media. If, in fact, David is speaking truth that community is a good and pleasant thing, that it stands out and gives life, and that it is worth prizing and pursuing and protecting, that's the inescapable conclusion we come to at that point. Community is a gift of God. It is a gift of God for the people of God to be shared with a hurting world, and it gives life. It stands out, and it gives life. One last thing. It also takes root, but how so? Okay, you said, you said it, it comes down. You said it descends. You said it, it flows from above and down. It's a gift. What is its source, ultimately? What is its source? Here's a funny thing about community and how it, it's related to the gospel. Christian community, fellowship, Konania, the, the, the Greek word in the New Testament. Um, the funny thing about the way that the gospel and community work. On the one hand, community attracts people to the gospel because it stands out, right? It's like, I've never seen anything like this, okay? What is this? Why do you people love and care for each other the way that you do? What makes you so different, right? So on the one hand, community attracts to the gospel, but on the other hand, it is a direct result of the gospel. You see, it's, it's both at the same time. The way these two interact, the community and the gospel, on the one hand, it, it draws, community draws attracts to the gospel, but on the other hand, its only source, its only hope, its source, its roots, are in the gospel. Both somehow at, at the same time. What are we talking about here? Uh, this community, um, this thing that is said to be so good and pleasant. We need to just kind of drill down here for a minute. What are we talking about? It, it's, it's more than... It includes this, but it's so much more than just having things in common. That's fine, but it's so much more than, it's so much more than, than, than it includes this, but it's so much more than just shared common experiences. It includes that, but it's so much more than that it's a work of god's grace again i cannot stress this enough how the psalmist how david speaks three times it runs down it runs down it you can say falls or comes down depending on how that's translated it's reiterated throughout this, this psalm you can't miss it we don't work this up we don't earn this we don't deserve this it has to be given Truly, it's a gift of God's grace. It's an extension of His love to us. This thing that's being described here, it comes only ultimately, only ultimately from His hand. Let me me just try and illustrate this. So, the the first great awakening, the first great awakening was this, uh, a revival, a spiritual revival that swept through the American colonies back in the 1730s and 1740s. Jonathan Edwards, that's a name some of you may be familiar to some of you, Jonathan Edwards was a a key, humanly speaking, was a key figure okay, in the First Great Awakening back in the 1730s, 30s, and 40s. Uh, In 1741, after this had been going on for some period of time, uh, Edwards wrote this short treatise that uh, had this title, The Distinguishing Marks of the work of the Spirit of God. And the treatise, the little book, was exactly that, the the distinguishing marks of the work of the Spirit of God. What what Edwards is trying to do, he's studying, he's observing, he's studying, he's analyzing, how do you know when what's happening here is in fact a genuine Holy Spirit gospel-driven revival? How How do you know? Do you know what was uh, last on his list? And the reason it's last is because it's the greatest, the, the greatest evidence for the work of the Holy Spirit. Greater love for God, greater love for one another. Of all the marks that he lists, and there's quite a few, the greatest ones, the clearest ones of the mark of a Holy Spirit-driven revival is greater love for God and greater love for one another. Why? Because only God could do it. That's why those, those are the plainest marks. That's why they're the most evident marks of something's happening here that only He could do because well, that's supernatural, such growing love for him and and for one another. You get hints of the fact that it could couldn't come from us even even kind of in a way, in the psalm, in in the uh the superscript there we don't really it's not really part of the scripture itself, but it's we kind of something of a title, a song of a sense of David when you consider. These words came from David's own lips. There's a there's a sense of tragic irony here. When you you think about the fact that a point would come later in David's kingship when the sin that he brought into that capital city, I'm speaking of Bathsheba and Uriah, the adultery and the murder the sin that 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 great king would bring into his capital city would be something that then would bring division and destruction to every corner of his kingdom. It's pretty obvious. We can't bring this into our lives, community, ourselves. This has to be a thing. Not of us, not of David, but the son of David. Or as we say in the old hymn, great David's greater son, the prince of peace. He alone, Jesus, he alone can bring this about. Community is, it draws to the gospel, but it is rooted in the gospel. Think with me, just what do you know about yourself on your most honest days? Bless you. You are more guilty and sinful than you ever dared to fear. Right? But praise Jesus. In Him, we are more beloved and accepted than we ever dared to hope. Now, that's good news. And that's what generates and sustains community as described here in Psalm 133. Because that news is, on the one hand, so terribly, terrifyingly sobering, and at the same time, so wondrously exalting, right? It's, it's what allows us to be humble and bold with one another at the same time. Well, that's a beautiful thing. It's what allows us to be soft and strong at the same time. It's what allows us to be kind and courageous with one another at, at, at the same time. It's the gospel that does that. So what, where do we go with that? There's nothing else to say except this. Let's preach that. Okay? Let's preach that to ourselves and to one another that we might be able to do relationships well. Let's preach that to ourselves and to one another that we might be actually what we profess in the ancient creed. One holy Catholic and apostolic church community. It's a gift of God to the people of God to be shared with the world. Oh, that we would live that out. Let me end with this. J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, not the movies, the book. There's a wonderful section in the book where Bilbo, the Hobbit, and uh, his companions, they, they have set out on this long adventure, this journey through mountains and forests and and dark waters. And uh, at one point along the way, he and his traveling companions come to rest at the wonderfully hospitable home of the great Elrond in a place called Rivendell. Let me read you Tolkien's description of this place. It was perfect. Whether you liked food or sleep or work or storytelling or singing or just sitting and thinking best or a pleasant mixture of them all, all of them, the ponies as well, grew refreshed and strong in a few days there. Their clothes were mended as well as their bruises, their tempers, and their hopes. Well, that's Rivendell. Now, let me ask you, how many of you here this morning could use a mending like that? And what would it mean for us to extend a mending like that to people around us? You see, community is a gift of God. To the people of God to be shared with a hurting world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we hear it, we read it, we grieve that we so rarely see it, but we know it's true. We're already one. Because of your work, we are already one. We are a cherished bride, all of us, already as one. We are a temple made up of living stones, fitted, chiseled, put into place already. We are the body of Christ Made up of many members, each with your assigned purpose and design. We don't have a thing to create, it's already done. But we have much to live out. It is good, we were made for it, it is pleasant. Our hearts are drawn to it. Thank you for this psalm, this short little psalm, these three image-filled, gunpowder-packed verses. Thank you for the vision and its pull in our hearts. We pray that you would ignite our hope that you would fuel our labors to pursue it, fuel our labors to protect it, fuel our labors to enjoy it, to celebrate it, to live it out. Thank you that we could pray these things, and we do pray these things. Lord Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.